Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Gather, welcome to church. Thanks for being with us today. My name is Josh and I'm the pastor here. Uh, today is different. It's different than our typical online liturgy. Uh, there wasn't anything before just now when you saw me, and uh, there's not really anything after. Today is Q&A Sunday. This is our second Q&A Sunday. We've asked you to submit questions uh, to let us know what you're curious about. What do you have questions about? And we've told you that everything is on the table, and we want to hear from you. So you did that. You submitted questions online. Uh, I have 10 questions I'm going to answer today, or I'm going to try to answer, or I'm going to talk to you about a little bit. Uh, 10 questions, and uh, there's no sermon today. It's just, it's a Q&A. And so first, I want to say thank you for submitting your questions. Some of you did that anonymously, and I uh, totally respect that. Some of you let us know uh, who you were, and I appreciate that too, uh, but excited uh, excited to get into these. Uh, a couple things before we get started. There are 10 questions, so I'm going to I'm going to work through them pretty quickly, but a couple of things to let you know about uh, just to set some expectations. First, uh, I don't have all the answers. I don't think I have all the answers. Uh, I just, I want to hear from you about what you want to know about. Uh, this is just kind of a, a feedback loop for us, and it, it really lets us know what your priorities are, what you care about, uh, and what you want to learn about. So I don't have all the answers. I don't think I have all the answers. You'll hear that today from me. I don't know on some of these. And then second, agreement isn't required. So if you hear something from me and you're like, yeah, that is not where I am, that's okay. We don't have to agree on all of this. You know, a lot of this I've changed my mind on over the last uh, five years, three years, one year. I've changed my mind on this and I'll probably change my mind again. We don't have to all agree about all of this. So feel free to challenge me, disagree with me, uh, because I want this third to be uh, the beginning of a conversation. This is not, I'm not giving the final word on any of this, okay? So I want this to be the beginning of a conversation. Uh, it's, a, it's an open dialogue. So please let me know if you have more questions, if you have follow-up questions. I, I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a series of meetings about these questions. So uh, let's, get on, let's get into these online questions that you submitted. We have 10 of them. I'm just answering them in the order they came in. Did not rearrange them. I have, a, I have some notes today, uh, but just like last time, I didn't want to over-prepare because I didn't want to over-kind of shape or really protect anything. I just want to share with you, like if you ask this question, uh, in, in person. So here's the first question. What are the practical ways gather ensures that they are a safe space? What are the practical ways that gather ensures that they are a safe space? So first, let me uh, say that we've actually changed some of our language around this really recently. So we used to always say, this is a safe space for you. Uh, this We said, this is a safe space for you. But we got some feedback from folks that said, hey, actually you, Josh, uh, white man, you don't get to decide if this is a safe space for me. That's actually, you, you don't get to do that. I get to decide for myself if this is a safe space. And that's great feedback. And we really appreciated it. And so now we say that we hope it's a safe space, that we want it to be a safe space, but we actually don't get to decide for you if it's safe. You get to decide that. And then we are working towards that. We're hoping that it's safe uh, through kind of leadership and culture and then content and language. So leadership and culture, we're, we're, putting, um, we're, we're putting people that have different views and experiences in places of leadership so that they can speak into what matters to them and what helps them feel safe. 
so on our board, it's not all people with my exact same view and experience. Uh, our group leaders are not people who have my exact same views and experiences. The people who talk on stage are not the people who uh, have my same views and experiences. So we're, we're trying through our leadership and through the culture of the church to say, we're going to keep talking about creating a safe space and then put different people in roles of leadership so that we can ensure that safety. And then through um, kind of our, our content and language. So we, we are working in the ways that we communicate to you to create as safe of a space as possible. So um, in the songs that we sing, we're changing lyrics, uh, we're changing pronouns, uh, we're working in our content to create as safe of a space for you. Um, when we prepare, when I prepare uh, sermons, I'm thinking to myself, what is another step I can take in this content to make sure that it includes the next level of people? So not just people who look like me. Well, what's a what's a space? Uh, what's a way that I, I can take just one more step to be more inclusive, to provide more safety, more care to people who, again, don't share my views or my experiences. And then a thing that I've been trying to do more recently is just be as open and willing as I can to change. So um, we're just we're changing. If you give us feedback, we 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 are open to change the things we're doing. If you say this thing doesn't. Uh, make me feel safe, we will change it. And so that's kind of a big uh, piece for us is, um, you know, we're, we're working towards it in our leadership and our language and our content, those kinds of things. But we want to hear from you because we are open and willing to change when things, uh, when we fail at creating that safe space. So that, that's how we, uh, those are kind of the practical ways. Second question, uh, does Gather plan to invite speakers who hold different identities uh, slash intersectionality outside of the male, heterosexual, able-bodied perspectives that align closely with Gather's values? So uh, really good question. So do we plan to invite speakers essentially who are not, who are not me? Uh, so yeah, we've been doing this some. You know, our last three weeks, I haven't been teaching and people with different views, different experiences than me have been teaching. So you know, our guest speaker plan, you know, it's different at every church in terms of the guest speakers and, and teachers and preachers. But our plan is that we want to cultivate teachers from, from within our community. So we've decided uh, this year that we don't have <laughs> we don't have the budget to bring in guest speakers from outside of our community. And it's not really within our culture, our ethos to say, hey, this person doesn't know us, isn't connected to us. Why don't you come spend some time? And so we've said, hey, why don't we cultivate people from within the community, people who don't share my views or my experiences. Let's cultivate them to get up in front of our community to teach and preach. And so uh, we've done that a little bit this year, and it's been really valuable, I think, and really beautiful. And so we're going to continue to do that. So if you are interested, if you're the kind of person who says, hey, I want to I want to teach. I, have, I feel like I have something to say and I have uh, gifts in this way, then please uh, let me know. But great question. I'm We are actively trying to do that. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, third question, how does Gather approach growth? Are we looking to grow? And if so, what does or should growth look like? And how do we, how do we balance growth with not becoming too big? Okay, so great question. So is the church trying to grow? We don't talk a lot about growth, but are we trying to grow? And what do we think about growth? So I have this... Um, I have, an, I have an opinion, okay, this is not fact, this is just my opinion. My opinion is that I don't think churches scale very well. So everything changes when a church tries to scale. So um, when a church gets over, let's say, 250 or 300 people, my role and position in your life changes, 
Uh, I can't know 500 or 1,000 people. I can't know what's going on in your life. I can't know what you're walking through. I can't know what's going on in your family or uh, the beliefs you have or the questions you have. Uh, I, I can know what's happening with 100 people, though. And uh, your relationship to the church and to each other changes if there's 500 or 1,000 people. It's less personal. It's more of a product that you're consuming. Uh, it may be more entertaining at scale. The programs may be better at scale. It may be more efficient at scale. If you can have uh, four services, pack in as many people as you can, maximize staff, you can make it more efficient. You can make it more entertaining. But I don't think it's really church anymore in the same way. So our goal hasn't been scale. It hasn't really been growth. Our goal has always been sustainability more than growth. So how do we build a sustainable community that's able to meet the needs of our church? And um, so currently we're kind of right on the edge of sustainability. Sustainability is a moving target, right? There's not like a hard number of attendees and budget or whatever that makes it sustainable. Well, we're kind of right on that edge of sustainability. So Technically, I think, yeah, the church probably does need to grow a little bit, um, but we're not going to spend like marketing dollars or a lot of time, energy, resources into growth and scale. We're going to say, hey, we think this thing is moving in a direction. We think that's beautiful, but we are not scaling. When you scale, something else happens. So, uh, yeah, good question. I'm not spending a ton of time thinking about it right now. I'm trying to care for you, for the people we have at the church. Uh, next question, uh, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Why or why not? Listen, I'm just answering the questions as they came in, okay? This was not my question. Uh, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I'm going with no clue, uh, but my guess is no, uh, because they didn't have umbilical cords. So I'm going to say no, but I won't be mad. If I find out I'm wrong, I'm not going to be mad about that. Next question, let's move on quickly from the belly button question. Next question, is there a historic atonement theory that best describes your theo theology of salvation especially the salvific efficacy of Jesus's sacrificial death. All right, so <laughs> atonement theories, and is there one that includes the salvific efficacy of Jesus's sacrificial death? Now, I know you were just, you were eating breakfast this morning thinking about the salvific efficacy of Jesus's death. So let me just give, I just, first, let me say, you know, a month ago, July 31st and August 7th, I preached two sermons on atonement theories. So if you're like, yeah, I do love atonement theories, but I don't know what Josh thinks, you can go back and you can listen together. It's maybe 45, 50 minutes on atonement theories. Maybe you're into that. But for me, I like to combine a lot of the historic atonement theories into kind of like an atonement theory soup, uh, stew of some kind. So in my teaching, you'll hear a lot of what's called the moral influence theory that Christ died as the ultimate uh, supreme demonstration of God's love. And experiencing, accepting, living into that unconditional love is uniquely salvific and transformational. So it will, it will save you. That, that what Jesus did on the cross is he, he showed us exactly who God is. And when we accept and we understand that unconditional love, we are uniquely transformed. But I like to combine what's called the moral influence theory with the Christus Victor theory. Again, some of you were like, not my deal. That's okay. And the, the Christus Victor mindset is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus defeats, is victorious over sin and death and evil. 
So I love uh, in the Christus Victor that there's like evil is kind of dealt with, that the problem of evil, that death is defeated. And I, I love that evil is defeated through powerlessness. Right? It's, not, it's not that evil is defeated through retribution or a display of power. It's restoration and resurrection. So I love that. And then in Christus Victor, there is no payment system. So we talked about this a few weeks ago that um, if a payment is involved, it's not really forgiveness. So um, in Christus Victor, there is no payment to the devil. You're not like paying off the devil so you can be freed from the devil. Uh, there's no payment to God so that God doesn't pour out his wrath on us. There is no payment. It is simply the power of God displayed in powerlessness to defeat death and evil once and for all. So I like both of those a lot. I think they are... Uh, especially um, worthwhile. Um, and then if you uh, are into that kind of thing, I would say, you know, listen to a couple of sermons and I have a, a book recommendation uh, on that as well, if you want it. But that is my answer to the salvific efficacy of Jesus's death. Okay, next question. I like this one. Uh, what are your views on hell? And do you believe there is a hell? Great question. Uh, so in two or three weeks, I'm going to do a sermon on hell. So I'll do 25 minutes on hell, uh, which <laughs> sound, as I say it out loud, doesn't sound that exciting for you, but, uh, we're going to do it. Uh, but let me give you kind of a, a short snippet here. I do not believe, uh, in eternal conscious torment. So that is one of the, that is one of the, uh, like three or four views on hell. I do not believe in eternal conscious torment. So I don't believe that that some or most uh, people will be sent to a place of endless physical, psychological punishment and pain with no exit. I don't believe that. I do not believe in eternal conscious torment. I don't think that lines up with any, uh, any of the God of the Bible. Uh, right now, I would say I've thought a lot about I've thought a lot about hell. If you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, they made you think a lot about it. But uh, right now, I would say that I am a hopeful universalist. Like I would love for everyone, everywhere, to be totally and completely restored, union with God forever, in paradise. I think that would be great. I am a hopeful universalist. That in that if that if there is a hell, that it's temporal and that all that hell does is lead uh, those who are broken and sinful into a final restoration and union with God. I would be into that. Okay, so I'm a hopeful universalist, but I think the Bible might speak more to a view of hell called annihilationism. So again, you can give it a Google if you want, annihilationism. So this view essentially says that the human soul is not naturally eternal or immortal. So we're not just born to live, to have eternal life. And then the eternal life is either eternal life with God or eternal life in hell. So annihilationism would say, if you accept uh, the unconditional love of God, if you accept your acceptance, if you live a life of union with God, you are granted eternal life. Otherwise, there is no eternal life. So it's eternal life or nothing. When you die, the TV just turns off at the end. There is no eternal conscious torment. It's death or eternal life, not eternal life for everyone. And that eternal life is either punishment or paradise. So I, I think the Bible speaks more to like an annihilationism view that God is granting eternal life. Some of that is because, you know, God's people prior to, I don't know, pretty recently, <laughs> 
uh, prior to definitely after the resurrection of Jesus, but they didn't have a view of hell at, at all. There was no hell. Uh, and I think the Bible doesn't really speak to eternal conscious torment. We're, we're going to get into it in a couple weeks ago. But in a nutshell, I don't think anyone is tortured forever. I really don't. I don't think that lines up. Uh, it doesn't line up with my beliefs. Um, and if, if that's your picture of what a hell is, um, then I then I don't believe in that hell. Uh, and then ne- next question, uh, love the kid space. Do you like straight from <laughs> straight from hell to next question? Let's talk about the kid space for a second. Uh, I love the kid space and the selfless volunteers that pour into the youngest members of our community. However, it seems like the lack of kid space and programs is likely a limiting factor to church growth and is a deterrent. Uh, for families with older children who would otherwise come together, what are the plans to address the need for structured kids care for older elementary kids and beyond? So right now we do care on Sundays uh, from uh, infants through second grade. And so the question is, what are you going to do for older kids? And, uh, you know, we've tr- we have tried to do o- older elementary uh, programming before, and it just totally failed a couple different times. And I think that's mostly because we haven't had a critical mass of those kids. And as a church, we don't have a, uh, if you build it, they will come mindset. So just like go all out, have the big building, have all the programs. And if you set it all up just right, then everyone will come. We have really taken a um, meet the need as it comes approach, which is um, harder for growth because we don't already have everything in place. I understand. That is hard. But when we have a critical mass of third and fourth graders, then we will start to do programming for third and fourth graders because that's a need that our community has. So it, it's a different mindset. And I know it makes it more difficult to maybe bring people along with you or for you to even show up. I understand. Um, but right now, we don't have the resources or the capacity or the critical mass to do older programming. And then as soon as we do, we will do everything we can to meet the need. And then um, just for like reference, I'm hoping that next year I'm able to spend some more time building out some really clear language and vision around what are we hoping to do with kids and families? I mean, we have an increasing number of kids and families and every year they just get older and they need a little bit more and we should be pouring more into families and how they walk alongside their kids as they seek to follow Jesus. And so we're, we're I'm, I'm, I'm actively thinking about it, but mostly we've just said, let's meet the need as it comes. And I know that that uh, isn't always the easiest thing or the best thing to do, but it's been where we've been at resources-wise and capacity-wise. Uh, next question, what would you say to someone who sometimes feels triggered by elements of the gather service, like worship, Bible reading, or a man talking on stage? So first of all, uh, I, t- I understand um, there are things in our service that we do that I am in charge of that are really hard for me. So I understand um, and like, I want to honor those triggers. Uh, what I would say is tell us about it. So just don't uh, don't keep that to yourself. I, I think it's really good for you to say it out loud. I think it helps you. And then it's uh, we want to know. Um, so in the last year, we have changed things that happen on Sundays because of the difficulty people have had with them. We've cut songs. We've changed lyrics. We've changed uh, our gospel proclamation and our doxology. Uh, They had he, him pronouns for God. We said them every week. And people said, hey, I don't know if that is the best representation of who God is, to always call God he and him. And we said, you know, I think think you're right. Uh, We're going to change that. So we took those he, him pronouns out. There's just some things um, that we are willing to work on, but because 
I'll just speak for myself because I have a limited view uh, and I have a limited perspective and I have plenty of blind spots. I don't always see them. So actually, I need you to tell me what's hard for you. Uh, so share that with me. And then not, but I can't promise you everything's going to change. We're, we're going to still read from the Bible. Uh, maybe we can work on giving more context to it. We're still going to sing some songs. Maybe we should work harder on what the content of that music is. Uh, but I want to hear from you. There will likely be a man on stage at some point, but maybe we can do a better job of acknowledging that that can be hard. I want to hear from you. So if that's, if any of that, if you, if you come here and you say that was hard for me, or that actually, that kept me from feeling safe, tell us. We want to hear from you. We want to work on it together. And then uh, next question, there's two more questions. Next question, can you talk more about what theological minimalism means at Gather? So we say theological minimalism every week. We say we want to have a faith uh, of theological minimalism. So this is actually a phrase that Andre gave me, so I'm going to blame him for it. Uh, but I think it's a Jesus idea. You know, when they ask Jesus what the most important commandments are, uh, he says that all of the law and prophets, all, all of the stories, all, all of the instructions, all of the rules, they all hang on loving God and loving your neighbor. Right? All, all of it boils down to this one idea. And w- what minimalism does is that it always makes room for what really matters. Minimalism makes room for what really matters. So in any context, that's true, right? If you're clearing out stuff in your house, it's not just I want to own less. I want to own what matters. I want to create space for what really matters in my life. So C.S. Lewis says, if you put first things, uh, if you put first things first and second things are, I've wrote down this quote, but I think it's wrong. The quote is, if you uh, if you put second, if you put first things first, you'll get it all. If you if you put second things first, you won't get any of it. So we want to spend our time focused on the first things, on making room for what really matters. It's not really about believing less, more more than it is about focusing on what we think really matters. And what Jesus says is that what really matters is love. And so we want to kind of peel away some of the things that get in the way of us focusing on what really matters. The first things. And sorry that I messed up the C.S. Lewis quote. I should probably work on that. I don't know why it's in my notes if I don't know it. Um, so yeah, theological minimalism is about kind of peeling away uh, some of our other kind of secondary beliefs so that we can focus on what really matters. It's not about believing less. It's about focusing on the most important things. Okay, last question uh, here. Uh, how can families with crazy schedules or far from campus be involved in serving the church or missions from home? So this is a question about serving. How do I serve if I can't show up? Which, by the way, totally understand. Uh, if, you're, if you live far away, geographically distanced, if your kids' schedules, all that, I totally understand. But kind of regardless of your geography or your schedule, um, serving should sit at the intersection of your gifts and passions and your availability. So how am I available and what do I care about? What am I good at? So you don't have to be present at every event in every way, um, every service opportunity to be really helpful. So uh, how, do you, how, how can you serve if you're far away and you're not super available? First of all, tell me that you want to serve. I will work with you because uh, we need help. We need, we need help from people who aren't just showing up. We're about to serve uh, every weekend in October, November. And honestly, I need some help coordinating this. Like who's on the list? Who needs an email? Uh, who, who's checking in with the nonprofit leader that we're serving at to make sure we can still bring eight people next Saturday? I need some coordination help. And that has nothing to do with showing up on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m., uh, that's just uh, lending uh, a little bit of help. Or if you're really administratively uh, gifted, if you're down for a spreadsheet, 
Uh, we always need help coordinating children's ministry volunteers. Uh, the schedules change. We're working on it all the time. Uh, if you want to sit uh, in the evening and spend 20 minutes looking at a spreadsheet, uh, we need your help. Uh, we could, we really need that. It would be awesome. Uh, and so all of it, all of it sits at that intersection of your gifts and your availability. And we, we have stuff, uh, regardless of exactly where you live or how available you are. Uh, but mostly it all just starts with you telling me, hey, I want to help. I can give half an hour a week or, uh, hey, I can give one Saturday a month or whatever it is. Figure out what that availability is and then we will work together uh, so that you can serve because we really, really need you. So we, I want the help for sure. So those are all the questions we have right now. So I might get more submitted online before, between when I'm filming this right now and what we do live. And uh, so if you're watching and you think, I submitted a question on Saturday night and it's not in this, that's why you submitted it a little late. That's okay. But I will answer it in person. So I promise I'm answering it in person uh, and, and giving it thought. If you didn't hear from it, you can't come, you didn't hear from me in, in this video and you couldn't come in person, please let me know and I will answer your question. Uh, but listen, regardless of our opinions, uh, regardless of uh, where we have room to grow or where we figured it out, regardless of our disagreements with one another, uh, regardless uh, uh, of any of that, I just want to remind you that what we always do here, no matter what, is that we root ourselves in our identity as being a people who are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. Right? More than our opinions, more than our beliefs, more, more than the things we figured out, more than the room we have to grow. We are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. And so I'm going to remind you today of that truth. And I, I'm hoping that if nothing else, you carry that with you uh, this week. And so gather, you can hear this good news today. You are created by God and God calls you good. You are loved by God and God calls you child. You are rescued by God. And God calls you holy. And by the power of God, through Jesus Christ, you are loved, forgiven, and free. Created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. This is who you are. This is the fundamental truth of your identity. Whether you feel it or not, you belong to God from eternity to eternity. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.